Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Renee White. I am your host. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming and listening. I hope you are enjoying your time and getting a bit of self-care while you're doing this. You might be nap-trapped, you might be going on a walk, or just in the car, or what I like to do is pop a podcast on while I'm cooking or folding that ginormous, never-ending pile of laundry. Am I the only one who is convinced that there is like a family of four living in the attic in my house and I do their laundry as well? My goodness, how, I, I just don't know. How do we create so much laundry? It is absolutely beyond me. We're a family of three. I, I, I just have no idea. I have no, I have no answers for it. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me. I'm so thrilled for you to be here. And we've got a great guest today. But before we jump into that, I wanted to quickly chat about a few things that have changed in my life recently, which is for all those playing at home. Um, in a previous life, I was not only a scientist, but... I used to be an attorney as well, and I have been coaxed back to the dark side, as they say. (laughs) And for two days a week, I am practicing again as an IP attorney, and that's not that's not the exciting part. But the more valuable part, I think, is the fact that yes, I get to flex that part of my brain again, but in doing so, I had to make a few changes in my life as one does when you take on more work and put more onto the mental load. And that is, you know, I have learnt from the past, which is you don't have to do this by yourself, Renee. Like suck up your pride and park your A-type personality and you need to ask for help and you need to be a little bit more organised because sometimes I can be a little bit spacey with those types of things. So, yes, I have taken on more work, but I have outsourced. I have outsourced a few of these things. One of those things is this podcast. So I now have a wonderful virtual assistant, Erica, who I poached (laughs) off my business coach. Not poached, but we're sharing, which is great. Um, So thank you, Fiona, for sharing the lovely and hardworking Erica. The other thing that I have done is I've called on my in-laws. So my in-laws are picking Eva up from school twice a week. But the other game changer that I've started doing is consciously meal prepping. So on the weekend whether it be Saturday or Sunday, I have been making two lots of meals and it's not like some arduous thing or I'll be making a double batch of something. So, you know, the classic 
spaghetti bolognese sauce or like we make a wonderful hunter chicken stew which is part of our fill your cup mama menu or we made well an arduous task was that we made dumplings but that was an activity that Eva and I did together which was fun so I try to make something where it's like a quick kind of braising thing so whether it be like you know a chili con carne or you know quickly browning off some chicken and throwing things into like an oven dish or a crock pot or a pressure cooker or something like that and then it does the work for me. So I do like 15 minutes and then throw it in the oven and, you know, it's there for like three or four hours slow cooking. And then I kind of, you know, package it all up and put it in the freezer. So the two days that I'm, you know, working late, I have a home-cooked meal ready to rock and roll as soon as I finish. And I can tell you it has been an absolute game-changer for us because I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I don't want to be having takeaway every single night that, you know, I'm finishing work late and it's just not working. So I just wanted to share that with you because I know that during the week, meal prepping can be really hard. Like everyone is time poor and we – more often than not, you know, grab something very quick and easy and maybe it's not as nutritious as you want it to be. So I just wanted to share with you that we do have a a whole bunch of recipes in our quickie guide, which if you head over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, and you could go in the top banner, it says grab the quickie, our go-to guide for the fourth trimester. And just be aware that fourth trimester is postpartum and postpartum is for life. And so if you hit the yes button there, you can download our quickie guide, which has got an amazing amount of resources in it already, which is around, you know, sleep, self-care, feeding, setting boundaries, relationships, but it's also got a whole page full of recipes to fill your freezer, snacks and main meals The majority of them are kid-friendly, freezer-friendly. And so, you know, if you're thinking, holy moly, I've got a really busy week this week or my partner's away on holiday or business or whatever it is, maybe just take the load off and batch cook something on the weekend. And even if it's just one night this week that you don't have to cook, oh man, it's just, I don't know about you, but it just feels so much better (laughs) when you don't have to do that. The other thing I was going to mention is that, oh man, our creamy coconut dal mixes, which are part of our Fill Your Cup product range, are flying off the shelf. They are the best winter warmer. Oh, you can have it as a main meal or you can have it as a side. So, you know, some grilled chicken or even some sausages on the side and some dal with it. It is so beautiful. It's got first in market to have organic chicken bone broth in it. So it's super, super nourishing. It will fill you because it's high in protein. Kids love it. I'm not joking. Oh man, we make this for clients and they're just absolutely devouring it. So these packets, you can get them on our website, which if you use the code FILLMYCUP, you can get 10% off those. And it's literally a packet mix with, and I'm totally underselling it. (laughs) It's red lentils with a beautiful spice mix in it. So we're talking about cumin, garlic, onion, turmeric, obviously that organic bone broth. And all you do is like tear the packet open, pour it into a saucepan, 
throw some, like, don't throw it. Don't throw the boiling water. (laughs) Pour the boiling water in and a can of coconut cream and then you just stir it and it's done, done in like 15, 20 minutes. And that is a beautiful nourishing meal or, as I said, side. So it's like feeds a family of four easily or you can have it as a side. So that's like, you know, eight side kind of portions to it. So jump on over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, head to the shop and it's our creamy coconut dal mix there and use the code fillmycup and you can get 10% off your order. So today's guest, oh, wow. You will know who this is. If you are, <laughs> if you are a mum, you would have heard about the Thompson method. Dr. Robin Thompson, she is a very well-respected midwife, maternal child, health nurse. She's a breastfeeding specialist, and she is the founder of the Thompson Method breastfeeding program. She's got over forty-five years of experience as a hospital and home birth midwife, and Robin. Robin has, you here in this interview, she's seen the standard of care within the hospital system really decline. And so this was her motivator for, I guess, understanding the effects of negative birthing experiences and, and what they were having on breastfeeding rates. And when she began to kind of dig deeper, this turned into seven years of research and a PhD, which is what we talk about. Robin has helped over 50,000 women breastfeed naturally and pain-free through her one-on-one kind of midwifery as well as her programs. And her entire ethos is to find a way for women to become stronger, more empowered, confident, and to have the knowledge to make more informed decisions for themselves and their babies, even when faced with unexpected or difficult situations. So in today's interview, Robin and I talk about her, I guess, her origin stories, what it was like (laughs) back in the day, working the floor in the, what, what did, what was it called? The labor ward, I think it was. (laughs) We talk about the Thompson method and her opinions on why we see a huge decline in women exclusively breastfeeding after the force and why we see a huge decrease in women exclusively breastfeeding after the first 16 weeks postpartum. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Here is Dr. Robin Thompson. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Robin Thompson. How are you today? (laughs) I'm happy now I'm talking with you. (laughs) Oh, I'm blushing. (laughs) Well, you know, we just had a little chat and made me laugh, so that's good. (laughs) Now, the listeners would have heard from the introduction that you are obviously a respected midwife, you've been a maternal child health nurse as well, but I think you are very well known for your expertise in the 
breastfeeding arena. That's where I definitely know you from. And Mm -hmm. a lot of our clients that fill your cup have engaged your services. I know people have used the Thompson method. They've told me all about it. Robin, today I wanted to have a chat with you, I guess, learning a bit more about you and the origins of the Thompson method. Yes. But can you kind of take us back? I'm also very interested in learning more about your PhD because I'm a science nerd as well. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit about yourself and how you've kind of got to this stage of creating this amazing, amazing phenomenon, which is the Thompson method? Okay. Yes, I can do that. I, I... I don't like to put myself out there too much, but (laughs) we'll try. Um, I have been 61 years in the Australian health system. I started with nursing and uh, then I went to do, I did midwifery uh, after I had my babies. I stayed home with them for uh, nine, nine, nearly, nearly 10 years, nine years for the oldest one, a bit younger, the two years less for the younger one. Stayed home to be the mother I wanted to be, and then I applied to do midwifery and I was accepted. I was qualified as a midwife, three months qualified, and I was working in the what they called the labour ward then, not the birth, mm-hmm. not the birth room or not the birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it called then? I forget now. It changed. Let's see. This is the <laughs> old brain. And, um, <laughs> and then I was one day working there, and and uh, the director of nursing rolls up the corridor. Beautiful woman she was, but you know, really, I was always scared of those senior people. Hey, Robin. Uh-oh, what have I done now? <laughs> anyway, she said, I just came to tell you that um, Marg's going off to do maternal and child health and you're going to be in charge of the labour ward while she's away. Oh, <laughs> and I said, what a rite of passage. <laughs> oh, no, I can't do that. She said, yes, you can, and you're going to. <laughs> so <laughs> I wow. Did, I took on that role by, you know, my whole journey has been a flow. I don't. I don't plan ahead about what I'm going to do. So that led to one thing and another thing. And then I was asked to be a consultant to set up a birth centre at the Vaucluse Hospital in Melbourne. I set up the whole unit with what's his name, the I can't remember his name now, but the architect and mm-hmm. had to negotiate with the health department, a whole lot of things and staffed and equipped it. And then the Mercy asked me to come back to there and help them build their birth centre, which... I did do my my dear friend Beverly Walker while I was overseas with my daughter. She she took over my role and we were able to and we've always been good friends communicate together on on that. So I had two really those were really big experiences in my life. You know, mm. apart from my loving midwifery and, and and loving the things that I did and changing things that I didn't think were very good, and especially when I was in charge of the labour ward, I would be very there much with the women right beside them and not let anybody do anything to them that was, I believe, was not respectful or out of order in any way. And then I went on to, um, oh, I was in my own practice, midwifery practice, and I home birthed for 25 years and I travelled mm. wide and far. I was known as the travelling midwife. Oh, wow. <laughs> I travelled wide and far. I went interstate. I went all across regional Um, metropolitan Victoria. I flew to Japan for the birth of my first grandson, home birth. He was born in Japan. 
connected with the Japanese uh, Midwives Association and they were just so wonderful. They didn't even mm. want me to register. They said, no, we will help you. And um, they wrote a journal article and, you know, that was beautiful. And then my second one, grandson was born in Melbourne at home, so I had that privilege. I have had a very, very privileged dynamic career and then I had a call from the Arab and Maternal and Child Health Service for some relief work because they were so busy and I was in my own practice. So I had to balance the two things together, which I was able to do. And then it got to the point where I was there and they, the maternal and child health nurses were sending me the women with breastfeeding problems or asking me to come to their centre to see the women, which I did as much as I possibly could. And then it got to the point where... Um, they wanted me to do just breastfeeding. Could I just see women breastfeeding? And I said, yes, I'd love to do that, but I'd have to balance it with my work as well. But also, mm. um, if that was reasonable for them, that I wouldn't expect the women to come to me, that I would go to their home and, and work with them and be beside them and not right in their space, but, but sit beside them. And they agreed to that. And then, of course, my database grew over six years. And um, my professors uh, picked me up at a conference where I was very beginning and very naive and knew, didn't really even know how to collect data properly. <laughs> <laughs> Not really a researcher at that stage. We, we all start out at that yeah. position, though, don't we? <laughs> yeah. And then they waited a whole year for me to make a decision whether I would carry on further, which I did thanks to them. And uh, they are brilliant. And they are two, three of them are the three of the country's leading midwives, Sue Kilday, Professor Sue Kilday, Professor Sue, Sue Krusky and Professor Leslie Barclay. Brilliant. So I had the very best without even knowing that that was going to happen again. Nothing was in my mind as to what would would happen. So I carried on from there and six years later, five and a half years, I think, to six years later, I was that year that I started my, I started a master's, right, and then that's a two-year master's and I got called to the office again up there and I get all <laughs> anxious. <laughs> anyway, it was to tell me my master's had been converted to a PhD. They were, oh, wow. They were very impressed with that. Uh, so anyway, that travelled on and I went on and I finished my PhD and it was awarded in 2014. And just recently I have read it for the first time. <gasps> oh, isn't it a daunting experience? I don't know about you. I'm just trying to, mine is actually, can you see up the top there, that purple one on the shelf underneath the yellow book? Yes. That's yeah. actually my thesis and I reckon I could count on one hand how many times I've opened it yeah. and when did I do mine like I think it was like 2011 it was like completely yeah. sorted isn't and it done. amazing and then I'm, it's terrifying and me being a breech baby with the feet up in the mouth so I have extended <laughs> legs I do everything the other way around I won't tell you what my, right what my mother used to say I love that philosophy <laughs> the other way around so I started at the back and then I got to the point where I'd read you know, a good part of it, and I thought, oh, maybe I should go. So I go forward and I read through. And I actually read the whole thing, and I can't believe that I did that, and I can't believe that it's taken me this long to do that too. So uh, I was always scared of um, seeing a spelling error. Oh, <laughs> I think God, I saw oh my God. One. <laughs> that figure's in the wrong position or, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, 
That is amazing. And so I I think there's a couple of things that I wanted to ask you that have just sprung to me. First of all, I want to acknowledge the fact that you kind of change tact with the maternal child health nurse and the breastfeeding consultations and said, I'm going to the mum's house. I have a firm belief on this. So we have quite a number of, you know, lactation consultants and things like that that we refer to for Fill Your Cup. And I have a really hard and fast rule that I'm like, unless they do a home visit, I'm not interested in referring because I just kind of feel like it's hard enough to have a baby, let alone pull everything together and get yourself somewhere. Maybe it's because I had a very traumatic experience in a maternal child health nurse room when I was was first um, postpartum. But um, that's just a comment. But I wanted to ask you, because I'm always curious with origin kind of stories, is that you were a nurse and then you had your children and then after that you became a midwife? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Was was there, what what was going on? Was there a trigger? Did you see something or did you have some sort of calling or something? No, my, my I, I, I had been doing some casual work for for my dear friend, George Toms, who was a beautiful obstetrician right. um, and gynecologist. And I did some local GP, had great mates there, you know, uh, but I just did that casual. And I did a little bit of um, home vi- home visiting for the elderly too. I've got uh-huh. some funny stories there, but I'll those now. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> uh, it was, I've had a privileged journey. Mm. The most privileged part of my midwifery career was home birthing, apart from being, you know, chosen to be in charge of a labour board because Marg did leave and then I was placed there. Mm. So I took that on for, what, 10, 10, 15 years. I can't even remember now. The time's gone so quick. I'm, wow. I'm, I'm looking back 79 years now, so my head's. <laughs> uh, can, can I ask, though? So when let you me just finish. Me. Sorry. I didn't, oh, yeah, sorry. I didn't answer your question, did I? I'm trying to get to it. <laughs> That's okay. So the question was about home visiting. Yes. Mm. So, yeah, I believe that. And that's where I learned about how privileged I was to be with women in their environment, learning from them. And they taught me so much. If I had the time to sit and listen and not be, you know, confined to rules and regulations and other people's what they say you can and can't do, it's me with the mother. I'm with her. Mm. She has the instinctive knowledge I don't have. She has the wisdom about her and her baby that I don't have. She has the family history and the genetic line as well. So she can talk with me about those things. So I need to be able to listen and I need to be able to see and observe her face, her body language, her baby, because every mother is unique. There's no two mothers the same. There's no two breasts the same. There's no two nipples the same. And the babies are all unique, genetically unique as well so biophysiologically unique they're unique across the board Mm. but I have this desire to always be there for the mother because she'll always be there for her baby right and if we nurture care and respect her and acknowledge the long hours that she works unpaid day and night for what she does 
in her life to prepare the next generation of children and the next generation of adults and the next generation. She's really working full-time, unpaid, and not really respected for the hours that she puts in. So I believe it's my role to go to her and respect all the things that she does and try and make it easy. Obviously, when I'm travelling across the world with what I'm doing now, I can go into the home but via this sort of thing. And it does work. It works for me and it works for them beautifully. I've just been I've just come offline now before you with a, a beautiful mother in the US, in, in Arkansas, and... Uh, you know, it's it's being with them that's the important thing and it's being with them. It doesn't matter through the transitions of pregnancy, labour, birth, breastfeeding, the first six weeks, the first three months, you know, and, and, and it goes on. So if, if they need you and you're with them and you're genuinely with them, then I think that is the best thing that we can do. And the midwives particularly need to be able to do that. And since we've hospitalised everybody, um, we have lost our, our ability to do the things we need to do. We are controlled. And mm. I don't believe that's the right way to go. I always think mm. about that. that mm. I, that's, um, that's very interesting. So, so being I, with. I, yes, exactly. Yeah. And so when you, when you were put in charge of the quote-unquote labour ward, yeah. Were there certain things that you changed or implemented to kind of align with these philosophies that yes. that you speak of now? Yes. Um, what kind of a decade are we talking about We're here? Talking I'm just trying to get a reference. The um, the where was I? Eighties, uh, early eighties. Okay. I think now. All right. I have to get my CV out. And <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know. Mate, I was I was born in eighty five, so, so maybe maybe that era. Well, my yeah. my my Joanne and I had a stillborn baby after that. That was seventy. Joanne was born in sixty eight. That was seventy three. So, mm. you know, roughly for seven years from Joanne, nine years from Mark. After that, right? So yeah, and then I was in in the in the labour ward for a long time, and. I was I was on the floor as well. I ended up being supervisor of the whole of the midwifery department in the end. Yeah, uh, you know, I was taken up, but again, up a higher level. Again, not that I wanted that, but it was you know something that flowed in my journey. But I did change things in the labourhood. I didn't let some of the doctors get away with things that I thought were inappropriate. And I'll mm. give you one simple example. Not a simple example. That's the wrong word, Robin. One example of a, a mother, somebody run out to get me to say quick. So quick means go, right? So I go. And there's the doctor putting the forceps, about to put the forceps on the baby's head for the third time. Mm. That does not happen on my shift. That does not happen. And there's a, a, a lot of other stories too. Um, you know, like in those days everybody rocked up into a woman's room to watch the baby be born, to watch her give birth. That stopped. Mm. You cannot do yeah. that. That's her private space. That's her birthing space. You can't run from another ward and come running around and, and just going into a woman's room. You cannot do that. Not on my shift. So <laughs> we stopped I love that. that. We stopped that. 
Yeah. And then the young medical students had to clean up and do the things that the midwives did. Why should they get away with it? So it was not it was it was done in a nice way, but it was yes. done in a way that is respectful. You know, we yeah. have to respect the people that we have the privilege of being with. You know, absolutely it's very, yeah, very it, important. It does come down to respect. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. If I came back again which is not likely, but if I came back again and with... I was going to say, is that an invitation? <laughs> and I was... <laughs> people no, listening? no, not here. I mean, <laughs> to her, it, it would be, I'd probably be a politician and I'd pay every mother a full wage while she has children at home and she's working 24 hours. Oof. Very little sleep, very little time to shower and eat and do the things she needs to do. The mother I just spoke to, was her fifth baby. So she's just going, going, going. And all her children are beautiful and she's prepping those children for the future. So Mm. I think, you know, that's what I would be doing and I would expect, you know, all the big organisations to pay tax that don't and put it towards these wonderful women that do this for following generations. Yeah. Well, you've got my vote, Robin. So. <laughs> but I'll be a problem. I've already, I'm, I'm already getting badges made up and like an electoral um, bus <laughs> to get going. Good. Well, I'm not really. Um, I'm not really a politician. I, I think most of them do a pretty good job. But I'm you know, some of them do a pretty good job. Yes, yeah, some but, of them. Um, some of I, them. Um, I don't, you know, that's just my thoughts. You know how your thought waves yep. go off? and they, Oh, yeah. I have got very big picture dreams and aspirations yeah. as well, and I would I would love for something like that. Um, and you're young me. enough now to do all that, whereas I'm coming to the point where I'm never going to stop. Yeah. I'm never going to. Actually, can I leave my glasses off? Absolutely. Yeah, they're annoying me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to stop. You yeah. know, I probably just expect to drop dead on the job. Sounds like a plan to me. I think I plan on doing that as well. Robin, can you walk us through? So we hear about the Thompson method. Yes. What is it? And I guess how does that, how does it kind of, how is it distinguished with other breastfeeding philosophies out there? I did not name it, right? I need to be very clear about that. I did not. My professors did that. Oh, they said okay. it later on when I'd passed and they'd reviewed all the literature and came up with the comment that, Robin, you, I don't know whether you realise, but you're the only one that's looked at breastfeeding like this in the world in the current literature review that they did. Mm-hmm. They did a whole, you know, how they do the, yeah, the, um, yeah. so they did that. And, and so it was, that came up through my professors suggesting that that's what it be. And I said, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Anyway, unbelievable of you, though. So it came to be that, which was fair enough, I suppose. And now I don't know. With many of you know, but my daughter, my my baby that I stayed home to look after, and my son, she is now my boss. Ah! (laughs) And I tell you what, she is brilliant, and so is my three leading team. They are brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I could not do any of the things I'm doing now if it wasn't for them. Mm. So they have taken me on a journey and I can't tell you my whole story because, you know, my daughter took me on a journey when I was 40 around the world with a backpack, never been out of the country before. Oh, wow. (laughs) And and so almost 40 years later she's she's there, she's right there. (laughs) 
I love she's that. brilliant at what she does. So are the other two. They're all very skilled in different areas, but yep. they interconnect in a very special way. And now I have the lovely Rachel Austin, who is Rachel Wise Austin. She is my head of my academy and she's taken over all the education and now the education is starting to move into different directions. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so the Thompson Method came about because of that and then it's continued on. I don't know whether it should or shouldn't be, but I just go with the flow, as you know. That's what <laughs> I do. And what, what was intriguing was when I was visiting women in their homes at Darabin, I was needing to know why why so many women come out of hospital with breastfeeding complications when you don't see this at home. Mm. I didn't see it at home. So then I moved on to thinking more and more and more and then, you know, and and, and it grew from there. So that's how the Thompson Method grew. It wasn't the Thompson Method then, but it's grown into that. You know, it's like a baby growing and developing, growing and developing, growing and developing. It's doing that. And so I follow that now because I'm very privileged to be leading a team of beautiful, beautiful people all around the world, admin people who help women. We now have educators and we have practitioners and they're all doing the academy. There's a different scope of practice for the educators than there is for the practitioners. But Mm -hmm. Rachel's done an amazing development I'm thinking of words. I'm a word girl, right? So the first <laughs> module in my in that academy is the language, and it's 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 not called woman friendly language, but it's changing our language to a much more kind, gentle, calm, and respectful approach. So we don't have to be medicalized with our language, mm. and so that for the women, it's much easier for them to be able to communicate with you when you when you're doing when you're talking with them in that way. Mm. So, yeah, so it became the Thompson Method. It's grown. It's still developing like anything does, and who knows which direction it will take when I'm gone. I don't know, but I think I've set the, the foundations for it. And I'm the privilege for me is I'm able to share all the things that I've learned over many, many years, but particularly what I learned from my research. Mm. 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 I love that. So, and I guess you've touched on it already, the fact that, you know, we've, we see a large proportion of women kind of step out of hospitals with breastfeeding challenges. And, you know, there's statistics like the fact that, you know, 95% of women walk into motherhood wanting to breastfeed, but after, you know, 16 weeks, only you know, 30%, 35% are actually mm. doing that. Mm. What do you think are the kind of contributing factors around this? Look, I don't want to be critical, but I have been in my research, right? It's what we've been taught for the last 50 years, including what I was taught but walked away from because it, mm. it didn't fit with me. And it goes back to the very early days of lactation consultancy And uh, when we interfere with a mother and her baby, that's her baby, and that baby is highly alert and absolutely instinctive together they are, Mm. and we should be making that happen without question, except if a baby's APGAR score is less than seven. 
that's the only time I would think someone else would be involved. But we should not be handling another mo- a mother's baby. We should not be having photographs taken with a baby. We should not take a baby from its mother. And if anybody has to take it, it's her partner or her advocate, whoever she's chosen. But not just all of us handling, rubbing, you know, doing all the routine procedures. So routine procedures that are not urgent or emergency, they're not routine when they are urgent or emergency, uh, it don't need to be done. And we're working in a hospitalisation approach to thing, an organisational approach, a policyisation approach. I've got a big presentation on that. Um, mm. I've developed a big presentation because, again, I was just wanting to put it all together, what what is happening. So the last 50 years, maybe a bit more, it's been very difficult because we're, the education is that, that and that, you know, mm. and it's... There's a lot of learning on rubber dolls as well in the mm-hmm. in the education field, and that some people like that, and I respect that. But for me, I'd rather be learning talking with. I'd be rather learning being mentored by someone who's really experienced and who's sharing their knowledge with me. So that's why I choose to share my knowledge. So I think not because I share. It's all just been natural. I don't haven't hadn't set out with a plan to do this ever. I would never have known I'd be doing. I would never have known I'd be talking with you today. <laughs> but never here we are. <laughs> I'd never have known that. So I don't know. Have I answered that reasonably well for you? Did it cover? Yeah. It? Did you need yeah. to tell me? Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think there's a lot of box ticking, and as you oh, say, the tick boxing is just collecting stats for somebody else when we should be providing our time with the women and yeah. writing a story with her not just for her but with her you know it's her journey it's not our journey we have a privilege to be with her it's something that I've had previous guests on the podcast around you know birth trauma and Mm. you know I'm air quoting standard hospital practices Mm. and I think for someone like myself when you know I'm I was a first-time mum. I ended up having a cesarean. Mm. I didn't know that I couldn't request to have my daughter stay with me the entire time and start that all-important skin-to-skin in the theatre. You know, Mm. she was whisked away. I didn't see her. My husband was with her, but nevertheless, like, no, you know, I didn't see her till the kind of what's that area that they put you in recovery area, yeah. and even still, like that was like I remember, you know, it was cold, and all I had was like a gown on, and yeah, I had blankets and things like that, but she was already fully clothed, you know, mm. hat on. I'm trying to breastfeed for the first time. I've got people coming in and out of the curtain thing, and I can hear you know, a ton of activity around me and it's just things like that and I think to myself, you know. And a baby's just emerged from beautiful warm water from the mother. I know. No wonder I had such a a hard problem. You don't put a hat on a baby's head. I know. know. It's It's highly sensitive. But This little baby is so in tune and highly sensitive. Yeah, don't recognize all that. We take over like this is an illness model. 
Yes, and, yes. You know, and, and it's not the way it's meant to be. And I can say that confidently with the home birthing that I did for 25 years, I never transferred by an ambulance. I always talked with the women and we would decide together whether it was appropriate to go. I had a beautiful medical team who were always, I was always able to talk with them. They would never, ever turn me away. Mm. And to this day, we're still good friends. Mm. It's, it's like it was never the rules and the regulations and the control and the, and the politicians wanting to change what we do. None of that. So my presentation covers all of that. <laughs> Where are you going to be presenting that? Do you mind I'm me asking? I'm not sure yet, but it, I do. I have done it on a few. I've done it for the Australian College of Midwives and I've done okay. it for, a few of the, for the student midwives and um, I talk about it. I'll probably write it in a book one day. <laughs> You should. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I, um, think, I think we have to stop, look, listen, and we have to acknowledge experience, mm-hmm. knowledge, and wisdom. And we, we, I say, my obstetric friends and us, we are complementary. We're not. We're midwives. We're not responsible to them. Midwifery is a, is a profession in its own right. And we are not responsible to them, but we do have a complementary relationship. And if we can recover that and have us all together again like we used to be and have the hospital system working with us, not against us, and, you know, having the access that we used to have without question, Mm. it was just superb. And when I think about that and the differences now, I realise how lucky I was to be in that era. If we could do that, we would make such a huge difference to how women are giving birth now because the cesarean, the 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 intervention rate and the cesarean section rate is really out of control. Mm, mm. I, that's it's a great point because it it seems to me that it is glaringly obvious what the answer is, mm. but. For whatever reason, and I think it is the establishment of, you know, policies and, you mm. know, the fear of, you know, insurance. Lit- insurance and, you know, litigious kind of mm. um, activities. I think that is, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> I'm not a midwife, I'm not in this, mm. but my understanding from someone looking from the outside in is that they are the hurdles. Like we know that mm. continuity of care is the gold standard in yes. Australia. You know, you only need to look to the amazing documentary Birth Time to realise And the that. research too. Yes. And, the re- and yeah, and yeah. My, my colleague's documentary, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely yes. brilliant. Yeah. Just, just amazing. So it's, to me it's glaringly obvious. We just need to, I don't know, fill in the gaps, jump the hurdles, get people on board, yes. whatever and keep that the looks politicians like. out. Yeah. Because the reason that they started sending everybody to illness institutions was because they were saving money. Now look at the mess we're in. Mm. We've got an overload of healthy women in institutions where sick people really should be. And there's a delay in services. There's a delay in being able to have a bed. There's a whole range of things that needs serious review, mm. serious review. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Robin, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, those systems and policies with within the hospital, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and I see it with clients as well. 
because we are, you know, always checking in with our doula clients in those first critical couple of days. Mm-hmm. And it's more often than not complaints of nipple trauma. My nipples are so sore. They're starting to get cracked or or people are concerned about low milk supply. Can you walk us through what is going on when we start to see nipple trauma and are there suggestions that you could give to the listeners if they kind of start to experience that? What should they do? Well, the primary thing is nobody touches your baby, nobody touches your breast and no one can touch you without your consent, legal consent. So it's very important that no one takes your baby by the base of the skull and shoves your baby on the breast. And I can't go into all the detail because there's far too much, and that is my research. Mm-hmm. There's far too much to go into, but no one can do that. And if you can imagine a little baby who's normally would make its way to its, the breast in its own good time, it would, it, you know, the, the healthy baby, of course, the baby that needs help, that's different, but not shoved to the breast ever. This is why. And without going through all the anatomy, everything that I've studied, that's why we have nipple trauma. Mm. And it stands out so much when uh, the women say to me, I do a feed with them over the nipple trauma and I say, oh, there's no pain or, oh, oh, that's better. It's sensitive but there's no pain. So they mm. were the word, the most common words used in the in the you know, in my practice, and it still continues today. And I think being able to, it takes a lot to understand what I've been doing. So it's not something I can just, you know. Rattle off. (laughs) No. But it is what happens in the oral cavity with the mother's nipple, expecting that the breast is shoved into the mouth. That's Mm. just not appropriate. I can't imagine us being shoved to a dinner plate every time we eat with, onto a great big lump of steak and trying to deal with what we have to do in our mouth to to, to uh, start masticating that and the babies have to draw, swallow and breathe. And, you know, there's a whole process to milk production and there's a there seems to be, and I'm saying appears to be, not enough knowledge on milk production over the first 72 to 96 hours so there's a big fear generated in women about their babies losing weight mm. and it's normal for a baby to lose weight in the first two to three days and then they slowly start to pick up as the milk volume peaks and then it, milk volume stays high for a while and then the milk volume regulates and everybody thinks they've got low volume because there's yes. not enough understanding of how milk volume works from the beginning when the colostrum is first drawn by the baby when the over the next 70 up to 72 hours how the baby feeds to produce the hormones that uh, increase the milk volume and it increases slowly gradually slowly gradually it's not there to start with and people think the breasts should be full and ready to go so babies are being given non-human milk so many babies are being given non-human milk. So many babies are being introduced to oral devices in the first three days of life. I, it's very hard to, it means really that there's a lot more in the education to understand and a lot more of being with beautiful women to see what they do and to see what we can suggest to them, not what we tell them to do or not what we do do to them. Mm. 
It's sitting down, talking with them. And if you're busy in a hospital system because of all the stuff that's gone on and you're not providing that care, like women going home on the second day post-major abdominal surgery would never have been accepted in in my day, never. Mm. So it's major abdominal surgery when you have a cesarean section and the cesarean section rate is so high that there's a lot of women going home when they're not really well enough to do so. Yeah. it's And then they're, they're dealing with that. They're dealing with whatever's happened in their transition from pregnancy, labour, birth to breastfeeding. They're dealing with a lot of things going on in their head, with their physical body, with their emotional state. And who's taking notice of that? Mm, absolutely. Mm. I think one of the things that I didn't appreciate is the fact that you know, post kind of cesarean, your milk takes a little bit longer to kind of come in in comparison to a vaginal. Birth. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah, not all the time. It it, 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 there's no one thing that fits all, right? Okay. So yeah. everybody's different. But some some women who um, have had a cesarean section, their milk will come in on the third day. And, again, that depends how they've been feeding to build up their hormone increase over that time and how they've been supported to do that. But it also depends on the genetics, their breasts, because we don't know how much glandular tissue is in each breast. You know, there's a whole lot of factors, not just one, and so we need to to work in a much more positive way. And the mothers will tell you what's going on here because they are feeling it. They're sensitive. Yes, you can feel the changes happening. It's really interesting. Like... And I like the fact that you've kind of touched on that. So what happens is- more, Renee, about that is that the babies are affected by the opioids the mothers have. Right. And mothers can't help that because they have to have the opioids, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, some people say the research shows that the opioids do affect the baby, but there's some people who say it doesn't. But we see what what I call the sleepy baby syndrome. Mm-hmm. That's what slows things down the babies are not able to be able to as active and, and ready to go, it will do it, but it's not as energetic as what mm. it's dozing, you know, sleepy baby syndrome. That's one of the major things that we see from even even any 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 opiates they've had, whether they've had it operatively, post-operatively, whether they've had it in labour, that transition. So I'm I'm on the road to encouraging women to think about if they need pain relief to look seriously at the sterile water injections that Nigel Lee, our Brisbane researcher and and midwife, he has done so much on that and it works. I've had it done for pain for just to um, on a bursa to to see if it worked and it certainly worked. So I'm not saying it works 100% for everybody, but he's yep. the expert and I'm are suggesting that women will, will be able to deal with things afterwards much better if they've had pain relief that's not opioids, if that is possible. Obviously, mm. someone who needs a general anaesthetic, that's totally different. Yeah, no, yeah. I and I, I think want... it's also, to me, like one of the things that really bothered me was the fact that, um, like, it, it had been written on my records that, um, you know, um, along the lines of she needs to do better 
um, with with feeding, not the acknowledgement of the fact that, as you said, you know, I just yeah. undergone a cesarean, yeah. and you know that my baby was a bit sleepy, and yeah. boy, oh boy, was I trying, you yeah. know. I um, know, and that's what most mothers want to do. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, we, all... we have to go back and think about. I think first of all, we need to connect, reconnect again as professionals, and not have. You know, insurance in our way, litigation in our way. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes out. No professionals go out with intent to cause harm. And if they do, they should not be there, right? That's they have a duty of care, and we all are responsible for for what we do, and we're accountable for our actions. It doesn't matter what profession you're in. So I think you know, if we follow those, uh, you know, listening, learning being together, asking questions of experts, other people that have had more experience that might be at the wisdom level or might be at the knowledgeable level. You know, Mm -hmm. it's those variations in where you are and what you've done. And also one of the biggest things I want to see is nurturing our young, or they may not all be young, but I say that in respect to the young midwives coming through, the midwives, the new midwives coming through, nurture them, stay beside them, work with them, talk with them, show them things, have work through the consent with a mother before you do anything. You know, all of those things should be honoured and that should be part of our process. Mm. Yep, couldn't agree more. Before we dive into our rapid fire because we're nearly out of time, I just wanted to ask... What are you going to do with a rapid fire? (laughs) Just three quick questions, don't worry. Everyone panics. Everyone's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Don't worry. Um, unfortunately, you're not going to win any money because it's not, um, you know, millionaire with Eddie Maguire. But it's just a quick, it's just a quick three questions at the end. But I wanted to ask Robin. You know, obviously, you are just an amazing individual. You have seen a lot of things. If there, if there is someone listening and they're pregnant for the first time, second time, whatever it is, maybe a second time and their breastfeeding journey was not great. What are your suggestions for people to best prepare for their breastfeeding journey? What What are your kind I can of like talk about team? the preparation that we do, right? Because yeah. I, yeah, and the preparation that we do is um, via the educator team or via myself or Rachel, whatever we're doing and we also by the practitioner team, and we go around speaking with them as well. But we went recently to Perth and we spoke with a beautiful group of of people and they were mothers, they were pregnant, they were breastfeeding on the spot. There was a male midwife there, there were fathers there, there was mothers sitting on the floor while daddy was sitting on a chair. It was just brilliant, like it was all relaxed and and, uh, so that's where I would be working Uh, preferably with women to have the knowledge Mm. and have information accessible to them to be able to decide what is best for them and to sit down and talk with their carers, whoever they're not carers, with their professionals, whoever they're choosing to be with, sit down and have a discussion with, um, I have a template and they can draw out of that template whatever they want. There's not me telling them what to do. I've got a lot of information in there. And they draw out of that what they want to put in there. And it's not so, it's not a birth plan as such, but it's, mm. a, it's a thoughtful document for the people looking after 
the women and themselves to talk about what this women's, woman's journey is planning to be, but always recognising in that she will recognise that if, you know, the, there are things that become an urgent or emergency situation, she understands that things will change. And we know by law that the senior medical officer takes over in a real emergency and makes the decisions. And all of that is part of the knowledge, not, not just, you know, about how to labour or because women generally know that if, if they are confident in what they go in to do. But we do a lot of work to make them not confident in these days. Mm, very yeah. much so. I'm not saying you... <laughs> Now, what I mean, there's a lot of negatives come through and I think probably social media does does that too and, uh, you know, sharing one experience with one woman with another doesn't mean to say they're going to be the same. Yeah. So the, and the language we use, the fearful language we use. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think and some people would probably think I'm crazy to mention another podcast on my own podcast, but Sophie Walker's podcast, Australian Birth Stories, I think has done an amazing job of being able to educate and empower women across the world, um, but also share, as you say, not just it's not about fear mongering. It's like here's some real stories about, you know, it's factual information about positive experiences. About what the system does and how you go through the system and how you work it the way you want to do, not what other people expect you to do because you're in an isation syndrome. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Oh, totally agree. Mm. (laughs) Um, We could talk for hours about this. I know that for a fact, but we are going to jump into the rapid fire because we've got Uh five minutes left on the clock. It's only three questions. Don't worry. Um, okay, Robin, what is your top tip for mothers? My top tip for mothers? You know, if I'm perfectly honest, I don't have a top tip. Because okay. <laughs> each mother is unique. Yeah, okay. So I need to hear her. I need to listen to have the right. The top tip is for us to nurture her, to care for her, to, to, to be with her and her partner. And we are very inclusive of the partners because we want them, whoever they are, to be with her, mm-hmm. to to be her support, to be her acknowledgement, you know, to be her advocate. But mm. is for me to take the time. And as a midwife, if things are going out there, we haven't got enough staff or we haven't got this and we can't do that, I would say sorry, but I have a duty of care right now and I'm doing that. If it's out of the hours of the hospital and I'm with women at home, that's different. I'm working with them in their time, not my time, mm-hmm. their time. Yep. So that would be my top tip because, okay. because I always look at the fact that every woman is different, every woman is unique. So how can I, I'm asking myself a question at the moment, yep. how can I say a top tip when they're all different and their needs are different, their experiences are different, their thoughts are different? What's happened in the past is different. Their mm-hmm. genetics are different. Their biophysiologic, their biophysiology, physiolo- physiology <laughs> <laughs> is different. Um, their their anatomical self is different. Their neurological, psychological, emotional—they're all different. So mm-hmm. for me, it's important to recognise the individual 
not not top tips for mothers. But again, am I am I being a bit philosophical? No, but I love it. Do it's you? all open. Yeah, it's all open to interpretation. I, yeah. I love that. Top and tips. maybe maybe that is maybe it's a top tip for the world to treat mothers in the sense that we are all different. We yes, all come we with our own um, baggage that we can store away in the top, top of an A380. And, <laughs> and stop taking babies off mothers and stop threatening mothers with docs if you don't do what I say. Oh, yeah. You know, I heard it, that something recently about that. Not fair. Not cool. A not mother cool. is a beautiful person who's done an amazing amount of work and depending on her life, how much she's done, we need to respect that and we need to, you know, tell her how wonderful she is. Mm. You know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't take much to build someone up when you know listening and hearing and seeing what they're already experienced. Yeah. Um, and if they're new at it and they've got some fears, we need to deal with that in a way that's kind and calm and gentle, not, yeah. not something that's over the top. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> um, our second question is do you have a go-to resource whether it be one of your own or something else where would people kind of start um for me you mean yeah or do, I, do I have a go-to resource myself? Um, for yourself and then also for the listeners as well me my go-to resource is my beautiful beautiful friends and one who's recently passed is Justine Keynes. I'm sorry. About uh, I, and I can't go into all of her, but she's just passed not long ago. My dear friend Jan Robinson, who's just passed, and amazing people in, in, the, in my life as far as my professional life and my friendship life goes. Another one's Carolyn Hasty. They're my go-to. And my daughter, of course, and my top team. And... And Rachel and I will talk about things all the time. We might even just send a little message to say, hey, have you got time to talk about this, you know? Mm. It's not, yeah, they're mine. Now, how, with the top, so what do you want people to, how to So, come like, a, it, it, do you have, like, a, a favourite kind of book or workshop or something like that where, you know, people could start learning more about, you know, yeah. birth, pregnancy? It's, there's a lot on my of my resources online. There's a lot of my resources. I don't even know where to be honest, but you know, there's <laughs> a lot of them out there. And there's there's resources for the the midwives, the practitioners. There's resources for the so it's all you know in different parts. And then if you look at my bookshelves over here, I've got and I've got many more in Melbourne as well. I just didn't bring them all years ago when I came, but I need them. Mm. You know, there's. Sarah Buckley's book. There's the beautiful Michelle O'Don who taught us so much. There's, there's, um, you know, over here I've got all of these books here. Marge Foley. I've got, you know, I, I, and you know, the the absolutely beautiful books I like with all the information of the research and how it fits and comes yes. together is Sarah Wickham from the UK. Oh, isn't she gold? Yes. Oh, I love yes. her. Do you think uh, they could, like, just export her to yes. Australia? Well, no, I, I have all her books and I buy the new ones as they come out. Yes. And I talk about that and I can, you know, really rely on her because she's so reliable with her research. and what Yes, she's, she's so thorough. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. 
So there, okay. that's that's a short that's a short version. That's a short what, list. Yeah. I love that. Last question, and I um, borrowed this off Brene Brown. Do you know Brene Brown, the American psychologist? She's got her own. Podcast. I can't say that I know. That's okay. So I always acknowledge <laughs> the fact that I pinched it off her. Huh? Um, you reckon you actually uh, acknowledged her? I do. I do. <laughs> um, what do you keep on your bedside table? A lamp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that it? I don't do much uh, unless I'm answering somebody who's in need. Yeah. Or if there's something in my brain that I need to relieve mm-hmm. from my brain. Uh, if there's something that I'm writing that if I just wrote one more paragraph, it would help me go to sleep. Uh-huh. But I don't have too much on my bedside table because that's my circadian rhythm time yes. coming back to where it needs to be. And I have learned much about my circadian rhythm over many years from shift work. Mm. And I have a 12-hour period of time where I need to come down, come down. And, and when I work with my circadian rhythm, that means I don't have a lot on, on my bedside table, but I do have my laptop reasonably handy if I need to get something out of here, right? Mm-hmm. Or there's something that I needed to respond to and I didn't get time that day and suddenly I remember that, oh, my goodness, I should have done that. And yep. then I might do that, then I can go back off and my, my clock will let me go to sleep. I love that. Do you, and this is just an additional question because I am always, I, I find um, people's wind down routines, particularly, you know, caregivers and people who are on all the time and shift workers. Do yes. you, have you found some sort of kind of like wind down or bedtime like ritual that that helps you kind of just chill out and come back to like self? I'm not really a ritualised person. I'm certainly okay. not, uh, but I do do some things now that I've decided at this stage and age I am no longer cooking. Oh, <laughs> because I love it just takes up so much time and so much effort in my day when I'm giving and working with beautiful women. Yeah, and so I go out for breakfast in the morning. Yeah, and I have the most beautiful restaurant that I go to that's run by a Japanese family and it is divine breakfast they do such a good job and people come from everywhere it's just lovely so I I do meet socially a lot more that way too because I don't get time to go out during the day or right much at night and then I go out for dinner I don't eat during the day I drink during the day not I drink this during the day well (laughs) For all, for all those playing at home, it appears to just be water. <laughs> yes, yes. Occasionally might have a little bit of hydrolyte in it, but that's, yeah, yeah not very often. And, uh, yeah, so I do that and then I have a lovely dinner, sit down, relax, talk to various people and where I go they're really special and look after me so I dwell on that as well. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Oh so I'm goodness. very, very fortunate and I decided at this stage of my life there is no need for me to cook anymore. Oh, my goodness. Robin. Robin, I love it. Okay, I decided at this stage of my life, 38, that I'm no longer making lunch boxes. My husband does that because yes. I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. So no. I don't want to do it. So I'm just going to handball it. But going out for breakfast and dinner, we'll put that on the shelf for me in a few years' time. That's right. <laughs> a while down the track. When the children have all gone, 
because yes. and then you come to the point where hmm, maybe no nah, I don't want to do that yeah and yeah. then you know I, I I'm so spoiled I might have a little glass of wine I don't yep. drink much at all but I do have a small glass if I do or a little cocktail yeah. or something and I'm very spoiled with that because when my friend Nathan at, at the fiction restaurant and bar he makes all these he's a cocktail expert and I get to test the new one. Oh, that is a good job to have. I do like that. Yeah. So look, it adds a bit of fun to life as well. Yes. And, you know, your brain does need different stimulation. You can't be in the same frame of stimulation all the time. And when you're a mother with growing children, it is full on. Mm-hmm. You know, your brain waves are just constantly in action. I agree. I've only got one and we are one and done. And yes, that is why things like I don't want to do the lunchboxes anymore (laughs) (laughs) has come into play this year. (laughs) We've got a few things in common, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, Robin, it has been amazing um, to chat with you today. Thank you so much for your time. You've been extremely generous. Um, we will put in all the show notes where they can, all the listeners can find you and the team and learn more about the education and, and services that the Thompson Method provides. Yep. Um, but, yes, I just wanted to thank you for your time. Oh, Renee, thank you. And thanks for the laughs too. I love it. <laughs> it's very informal here at the yep. Science of Motherhood. It is nice, <laughs> isn't it? And I think, you know, it is easier to communicate when you when you feel that more relaxed about it, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I don't know whether I hit the nail on the head every time because I there's so much goes on in my head. It's one of those heads that asks questions constantly. <laughs> I do love your philosophical questioning around the top tip for mothers. I, it yeah. has actually made me rethink, should I be asking that question? Yes, yes. I do like that. I like, I like guests who make me think about yes. what's yeah, going we, we on. We all need so, to look after each other and then the world will be a better place. Yes, amazing. <laughs> all right then, thank you and until thank you, next time, I see can. you. Bye-bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.